Chapter 12 of McClellan's Own Story by George Brinton McClellan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Manalakis. Chapter 12 Review of the Situation. McClellan succeeds Scott in command of all the armies. Their condition, general disorganization, no plan for the war. McClellan's plans for the whole war. Simultaneous movements throughout the country. Orders to Burnside for North Carolina expedition. To Halleck and Buell for operations in the West. To Butler for the New Orleans expedition. Halleck and Grant. Correspondence of McClellan and Grant. I do not know that anyone worthy of attention has questioned the manner in which was performed the task of converting the unorganized, defeated, and dispirited remains of McDowell's Bull Run Command into the Army of the Potomac, an army which so long bore on its bayonets the life and honor of the nation. Everything was to be done. An army was to be created ab initio, out of nothing. Raw material there was, but it was completely raw and it was to be fashioned into shape. Private soldiers, non-commissioned officers, officers, regiments, brigades, divisions, army corps, armies, with all their staff corps, were to be organized and instructed, not merely on paper, but in effective reality. Small arms, field guns, siege and garrison artillery, ammunition, equipments, camp equipage, bridges, ambulances, baggage and supply trains, tents, clothing, all these wonderful instruments and impedimenta of a modern army were to be fabricated, and not only fabricated, but so made that it would be possible to use them, so strong as to withstand a heavy strain, so light that they could be handled. It added to the difficulty of the task that no army approaching in magnitude that now required had ever existed on this continent, so that our own experience was not of much avail in the crisis so suddenly upon us. In fact, one of the greatest obstacles I encountered at this time was the difficulty of drawing some of the heads of departments out of the old ruts, and convincing them that what was eminently appropriate for five or ten thousand men was often an absurdity or impossibility for ten or twenty times those numbers. Besides all this, and going on pari passu with it all, was the irresistible and pressing necessity of so fortifying Washington as to provide for its immediate and future safety, so that the active army of operations should not necessarily be tied down to it as its base of operations and be unable to uncover it without endangering its security. More yet than this, the work was to be done in the face of a victorious enemy, whose outposts were within rifle-shot of our own and in sight of the capital, the only communications of the army and the government passing, as far as to the Susquehanna, through a people of very doubtful loyalty. Moreover, the government was utterly ignorant of military affairs and incapable of judging the necessities of the situation, too often actuated by mere motives of partisan expediency instead of patriotic resolve. The people also were ignorant of war, and sure to be urged to clamorous and senseless impatience by a partisan press. Finally, I was not only unsupported, but sometimes thwarted by General Scott, whose views often differed from my own. 
Under these circumstances, I had only my own unwavering sense of right to sustain me. In spite of all threats and clamors, I quietly persevered in the course I knew to be necessary for the safety of the nation, regardless of the result to my personal fortunes. The work was accomplished, and I know of no case in history where so great a task was so thoroughly performed in so brief a period. It certainly was not till late in November 1861 that the Army of the Potomac was in any condition to move, nor even then were they capable of assaulting entrenched positions. By that time the roads had ceased to be practicable for the movement of armies, and the experience of subsequent years proved that no large operations could be advantageously conducted in that region during the winter season. Any success gained at that time in front of Washington could not have been followed up, and a victory would have given us the barren possession of the field of battle, with a longer and more difficult line of supply during the rest of the winter. If the Army of the Potomac had been in condition to move before winter, such an operation would not have accorded with the general plan I determined upon after succeeding General Scott as general in command of the armies. On November 1, 1861, the following private letter was received from the President. Private. Executive Mansion, November 1, 1861. Major General George B. McClellan. My dear sir, Lieutenant General Scott, having been upon his own application placed on the list of retired officers, with his advice and the concurrence of the entire cabinet, I have designated you to command the whole army. You will, therefore, assume this enlarged duty at once, conferring with me so far as necessary. Yours truly, A. Lincoln. P.S. For the present, let General Wool's command be accepted. A.L. Immediately after succeeding General Scott in the chief command of all the armies of the United States, I arranged in my own mind the general plans for the operations of the ensuing year. I soon ascertained that more remained to be done in the West than in the East to bring the armies to a state of efficiency, and to that end did all in my power during the autumn and winter. Until my own sphere of command and responsibility was extended from the Army of the Potomac to all the armies, I supposed that some general plan of operations existed, but now learned that there was none such, and that utter disorganization and want of preparation pervaded the Western armies. I had supposed that they were nearly, if not quite, in condition to act, but found that I was mistaken. Even if the Army of the Potomac had been in condition to undertake a campaign in the autumn of 1861, the backward state of affairs in the West would have made it unwise to do so, for on no sound military principle could it be regarded as proper to operate on one line alone while all was quiescent on the others as such a course would have enabled the enemy to concentrate everything on the one active army. Again, if, within a week or two of the first bull run, it had been possible to advance and defeat the Confederate army at Manassas, the moral effect might have justified the attempt, even were it impossible to follow up the victory. But after the lapse of some months it would have been foolish to advance unless prepared to follow up a victory and enter upon a campaign productive of definite results. Early in September 1861, Generals W.T. Sherman and G.H. Thomas had been taken from my command and ordered to report to General Robert Anderson, just placed in command of Kentucky. Before many weeks, Anderson was relieved in consequence of failing health, and Sherman succeeded to his duties. 
In October, he became very much depressed and took an exceedingly gloomy view of the situation. He called for 200,000 men, a force entirely out of the power of the government to supply at that time. On the 2nd of November, he requested me to order Halleck, Buell, Stevens, and some officers of experience to Kentucky, stating that the importance of his department was beyond all estimate. On the 3rd, after giving in detail the position of the troops, about 25,000, he says, Our forces are too small to do good and too large to sacrifice. On the 4th, he telegraphed to me, the publication of Adjutant General Thomas's report impairs my influence. I insist upon being relieved to your army, my own brigade. Please answer. On the 6th, he telegraphed me, If Simon Buckner crosses Green River by the practicable fords, of which there are many at wide marks, may get in McCook's rear. Look at map between Camp and Louisville. Two roads, one by Bardstown and other by mouth of Salt River. The great danger is in stripping Ohio and Indiana of troops and putting them on this side with no retreat. The enemy also threatens the lower river at Owensboro, where I have nothing but unorganized volunteers. I have not a copy of the telegram, but my memory is clear that he also asked permission to fall back across the Ohio to prevent being cut off. I knew the condition of affairs well enough to be satisfied not only that there was no danger that the enemy would cross the Ohio River, but also that, if he were mad enough to do so, he would never get back and believe that the state could be held with the troops then in it. Therefore, I gladly and promptly acquiesced in Sherman's request to be relieved and sent Buell to replace him, ordering Sherman to report to Halleck for duty. On Buell's arrival, he found a complete state of disorganization. Not only so, but that nothing was being done to mend the matter, and no steps being taken to prepare the troops for the field. A total lack of system prevailed, and everything was allowed to run on as best it could. The new commander at once made himself felt, and justified the propriety of his appointment by the skill and energy which he devoted himself to the task of bringing order and efficiency out of chaos and helplessness. Buell found no difficulty in holding his own in Kentucky, and drove the enemy out of Kentucky and out of the capital of Tennessee as soon as he had received and organized the reinforcements, which were provided as rapidly as possible, and which Sherman would have received in due course, and having accomplished the first part of his task, still found means to rescue Grant and Sherman from defeat at Shiloh with the army he had so recently created. In my letters of instruction to General Buell, November 7th and 12th, 1861, hereafter given, I advised his remaining on the defensive for the moment, on the direct line to Nashville, and that he should throw the mass of his forces by rapid marches via Cumberland Gap or Walker's Gap on Knoxville, in order to occupy the railroad at that point to prevent its use by the Confederates, and to rally to us the loyal citizens of that region. Buell found it impossible to carry out these instructions on account of the unprepared condition of the troops, the state of the roads, and the lack of means of transportation. About the same time, I sent Halleck to Missouri to relieve General Fremont in the command of that department. I instructed him to fortify and garrison some important points in the interior and to concentrate the mass of his troops on or near the Mississippi for such ulterior operations as might prove necessary. I determined to expedite the preparations of the Western armies as much as possible during the winter, and as early as practicable in the spring throw them forward, 
commencing their advance so much earlier than that of the Army of the Potomac as to engage all the Confederate Western forces on their own ground, and thus prevent them from reinforcing their army in front of Richmond. As early as the beginning of December, 1861, I had determined not to follow the line of operations leading by land from Washington to Richmond, but to conduct a sufficient force by water to Urbana, and thence by a rapid march to West Point, hoping thus to cut off the garrison of Yorktown and all the Confederates in the peninsula, then, using the James River as a line of supply, to move the entire Army of the Potomac across that river to the rear of Richmond. In pursuance of this plan, I did not propose disturbing the Confederate forces at Manassas and Centerville, but while steadily pushing forward the fortifications of Washington and the instruction and organization of the Army of the Potomac, I desired to hold them there to the last moment, and especially until the Urbana movement was well in the process of execution. There was no possible military reason for disturbing them, and at best answered my purposes to keep them where they were. I was not apprehensive of any attack by them after the first few weeks. Their presence served to keep my men on the qui vive. The skirmishes which necessarily occurred gave experience of fire and taught watchfulness. They covered no ground in front of Richmond furnishing supplies needed by either party. They had the longest and most difficult line of supply that they could have. Early in December, this plan was so far matured that, finding Secretary Chase seriously troubled in his financial operations by the uncertainty as to military operations, I went one day to his private office in the Treasury Building and of my own volition confidentially laid my plans before him. He was delighted, said it was a most brilliant conception, and thanked me most cordially for the confidence I had thus reposed in him. Meanwhile, the preparations for operations on the lower Atlantic and Gulf coasts were progressing slowly but satisfactorily. Early in January, General Burnside received his final instructions for the expedition to the coast of North Carolina. The general purposes of this expedition were to control the navigation of the sounds on the North Carolina coast, thus cutting off the supplies of Norfolk by water, and at the same time covering the left flank of the main army when operating against Richmond by the line of the James River the reduction of New Bern, Beaufort, and Wilmington, which would give us the double advantage of preventing blockade running at those points and of enabling us to threaten or attack the railways near the coast, upon which Richmond largely depended for supplies. All of these objects were promptly accomplished except the capture of Wilmington. Had I remained in chief command, I should have proceeded to its capture as soon as practicable after the fall of Fort Macon, which took place April 26th, 1862. Towards the end of February 1862, I also gave General Butler his final instructions for the capture of New Orleans. This was accomplished chiefly by the gallant action of the naval forces about the 1st of May. General Butler was ordered to secure all the approaches to New Orleans and open his communications with the column coming down the Mississippi. This being accomplished, Mobile, Pensacola, Galveston, etc., were to be attacked and occupied in turn. About the middle of February, I instructed General T.W. Sherman to undertake the siege of Fort Pulaski and to occupy Fernandina, also directing him to study the problem of the reduction of Charleston and its defenses. By means of these various expeditions, carried out to their legitimate consequences, I hoped, without the employment of any very large land force, to occupy the important harbors on the coast, in order to reduce blockade running to a minimum, 
and thus essentially cut off the very valuable assistance the Confederates, in return for their cotton, received from abroad in the way of arms, ammunition, clothing, and other necessary supplies, which their own country produced either not at all or in wholly insufficient quantities. In addition to this most vital purpose, the possession of these important points on the coast would enable us to interfere seriously with the use of all railroads near the sea, give us new bases of operation from which either to make independent expeditions inland or to furnish new and short lines of supply to any main army moving parallel with the coast, while at the same time considerable numbers of the Confederate forces were occupied in watching them. The following letters and a subsequent paper addressed to the Secretary of War sufficiently indicate the nature of those combinations. To the Secretary of War, Headquarters, Army of the Potomac, Washington, September 6, 1861. Sir, I have the honor to suggest the following proposition, with the request that the necessary authority be at once given me to carry it out. To organize a force of two brigades of five regiments each, of New England men, for the general service, but particularly adapted to coast service, the officers and men to be sufficiently conversant with boat service to manage steamers, sailing vessels, launches, barges, surf boats, floating batteries, etc., to charter or buy for the command a sufficient number of propellers or tugboats for transportation of men and supplies, the machinery of which should be amply protected by timber, the vessels to have permanent experienced officers from the merchant service, but to be manned by details from the command, a naval officer to be attached to the staff of the commanding officer, the flank companies of each regiment to be armed with Dahlgren boat guns and carbines with waterproof cartridges, the other companies to have such arms as I may hereafter designate, to be uniformed and equipped as the Rhode Island regiments are, launches and floating batteries with timber parapets of sufficient capacity to land or bring into action the entire force, the entire management and organization of the force to be under my control and to form an integral part of the Army of the Potomac. The immediate object of this force is for operations in the inlets of Chesapeake Bay and the Potomac. By enabling me thus to land troops at points where they are needed, this force can also be used in conjunction with a naval force operating against points on the seacoast. This coast division to be commanded by a general officer of my selection. The regiments to be organized as other land forces the disbursements for vessels, etc., to be made by the proper department of the Army upon the requisitions of the general commanding the division, with my approval. I think the entire force can be organized in 30 days, and by no means the least of the advantages of this proposition is the fact that it will call into the service a class of men who would not otherwise enter the Army. You will immediately perceive that the object of this force is to follow along the coast and up the inlets and rivers the movements of the main army when it advances. I am, very respectfully, your obedient servant, G. B. McClellan, Major General Commanding. Honorable Simon Cameron, Secretary of War. Owing chiefly to the difficulty in procuring the requisite vessels and adapting them to the special purposes contemplated, this expedition was not ready for service until January 1862. Then, in the chief command, I deemed it best to send it to North Carolina, with the design indicated in the following letter. To General Burnside, Headquarters of the Army, Washington, January 7, 1862. General, 
In accordance with verbal instructions heretofore given you, you will, after uniting with Flag Officer Goldsboro at Fort Monroe, proceed under his convoy to Hatteras Inlet, where you will, in connection with him, take the most prompt measures for crossing the fleet over the bulkhead into the waters of the Sound. Under the accompanying general order, constituting the Department of North Carolina, you will assume command of the garrison at Hatteras Inlet, and make such dispositions in regard to that place as your ulterior operations may render necessary, always being careful to provide for the safety of that very important station in any contingency. Your first point of attack will be Roanoke Island and its dependencies. It is presumed that the Navy can reduce the batteries on the marshes and cover the landing of your troops on the main island, by which, in connection with a rapid movement of the gunboats to the northern extremity as soon as the marsh battery is reduced, it may be hoped to capture the entire garrison of the place. Having occupied the island and its dependencies, you will at once proceed to the erection of the batteries and defenses necessary to hold the position with a small force. Should the flag officer require any assistance in seizing or holding the debouches of the canal from Norfolk, you will please afford it to him. The Commodore and yourself, having completed your arrangements in regard to Roanoke Island and the waters north of it, you will please at once make a descent on New Bern, having gained possession of which and the railroad passing through it. You will at once throw a sufficient force upon Beaufort and take the steps necessary to reduce Fort Macon and open that port. When you seize New Bern, you will endeavor to seize the railroad as far west as Goldsboro, should circumstances favor such a movement. The temper of the people, the rebel force at hand, etc., will go far towards determining the question as to how far west the railroad can be safely occupied and held. Should circumstances render it advisable to seize and hold Raleigh, the main north and south line of railroad passing through Goldsboro should be so effectually destroyed for considerable distances north and south of that point as to render it impossible for the rebels to use it to your disadvantage. A great point would be gained, in any event, by the effectual destruction of the Wilmington and Weldon Railroad. I would advise great caution in moving so far into the interior as upon Raleigh. Having accomplished the objects mentioned, the next point of interest would probably be Wilmington, the reduction of which may require that additional means shall be afforded you. I would urge great caution in regard to proclamations. In no case would I go beyond a moderate joint proclamation with the naval commander, which should say as little as possible about politics or the Negro. Merely state that the true issue for which we are fighting is the preservation of the Union and upholding the laws of the general government, and stating that all who conduct themselves properly will, as far as possible, be protected in their persons and property. You will please report your operations as often as an opportunity affords itself. With my best wishes for your success, I am, etc., etc., George B. McClellan, Major General, Commanding-in-Chief, Brigadier General A.E. Burnside, Commanding Expedition. The following letters of instruction were sent to Generals Halleck, Buell, Sherman, and Butler, and I also communicated verbally to these officers my views in full regarding the field of operations assigned to each and gave them their instructions as much in detail as was necessary at that time. To General Halleck, Headquarters of the Army, Washington, D.C., November 11, 1861. General, in assigning you to the command of the Department of Missouri, 
it is probably unnecessary for me to state that I have entrusted to you a duty which requires the utmost tact and decision. You have not merely the ordinary duties of a military commander to perform, but the far more difficult task of reducing chaos to order, of changing probably the majority of the personnel of the staff of the department, and of reducing to a point of economy consistent with the interests and necessities of the state a system of reckless expenditure and fraud perhaps unheard of before in the history of the world. You will find in your department many general and staff officers holding illegal commissions and appointments not recognized or approved by the President or Secretary of War. You will please at once inform these gentlemen of the nullity of their appointment and see that no pay or allowances are issued to them until such time as commissions may be authorized by the President or Secretary of War. If any of them give the slightest trouble, you will at once arrest them and send them under guard out of the limits of your department, informing them that if they return they will be placed in close confinement. You will please examine into the legality of the organization of the troops serving in the department. When you find any illegal, unusual, or improper organizations, you will give to the officers and men an opportunity to enter the legal military establishment under general laws and orders from the War Department reporting in full to these headquarters any officer or organization that may decline. You will please cause competent and reliable staff officers to examine all existing contracts immediately, and suspend all payments upon them until you receive the report in each case. Where there is the slightest doubt as to the propriety of the contract, you will be good enough to refer the matter, with full explanation, to these headquarters stating in each case what would be a fair compensation for the services or materials rendered under the contract. Discontinue at once the reception of material or services under any doubtful contract. Arrest and bring to prompt trial all officers who have in any way violated their duty to the government. In regard to the political conduct of affairs, you will please labor to impress upon the inhabitants of Missouri and the adjacent states that we are fighting solely for the integrity of the Union to uphold the power of our national government, and to restore to the nation the blessings of peace and good order. With respect to military operations, it is probable, from the best information in my possession, that the interests of the government will be best served by fortifying and holding in considerable strength Rolla, Sedalia, and other interior points, keeping strong patrols constantly moving from the terminal stations, and concentrating the mass of the troops on or near the Mississippi prepared for such ulterior operations as the public interests may demand. I would be glad to have you make, as soon as possible, a personal inspection of all the important points in your department, and report the result to me. I cannot too strongly impress upon you the absolute necessity of keeping me constantly advised of the strength, condition, and location of your troops, together with all facts that will enable me to maintain that general direction of the armies of the United States, which it is my purpose to exercise. I trust you to maintain thorough organization, discipline, and economy throughout your department. Please inform me as soon as possible of everything relating to the gunboats now in process of construction, as well as those completed. The militia force authorized to be raised by the state of Missouri for its defense will be under your orders. I am General, etc., etc., George B. McClellan, Major General Commanding, USA. Major General H.W. Halleck, USA, Commanding Department of Missouri. To General Buell, 
Headquarters of the Army, Washington, November 7, 1861. General, in giving you instructions for your guidance and command of the Department of the Ohio, I do not design to fetter you. I merely wish to express plainly the general ideas which occur to me in relation to the conduct of operations there. That portion of Kentucky, west of the Cumberland River, is, by its position so closely related to the states of Illinois and Missouri, that it has seemed best to attach it to the Department of Missouri. Your operations there, in Kentucky, will be confined to that portion of the state east of the Cumberland River. I trust I need not repeat to you that I regard the importance of the territory committed to your care as second only to that occupied by the Army under my immediate command. It is absolutely necessary that we shall hold all the state of Kentucky. Not only that, but the majority of its inhabitants shall be warmly in favor of our cause, it being that which best subserves their interests. It is possible that the conduct of our political affairs in Kentucky is more important than that of our military operations. I certainly cannot overestimate the importance of the former. You will please constantly to bear in mind the precise issue for which we are fighting. That issue is the preservation of the Union and the restoration of the full authority of the general government over all portions of our territory. We shall most readily suppress this rebellion and restore the authority of the government by religiously respecting the constitutional rights of all. I know that I express the feelings and opinion of the President when I say that we are fighting only to preserve the integrity of the Union and the constitutional authority of the general government. The inhabitants of Kentucky may rely upon it that their domestic institutions will in no manner be interfered with, and that they will receive at our hands every constitutional protection. I have only to repeat that you will in all respects carefully regard the local institutions of the region in which you command allowing nothing but the dictates of military necessity to cause you to depart from the spirit of these instructions. So much in regard to political considerations. The military problem would be a simple one could it be entirely separate from political influences. Such is not the case. Were the population among which you are to operate wholly or generally hostile, it is probable that Nashville should be your first and principal objective point. It so happens that a large majority of the inhabitants of eastern Tennessee are in favor of the Union. It therefore seems proper that you should remain on the defensive on the line from Louisville to Nashville, while you throw the mass of your forces, by rapid marches by Cumberland Gap or Walker's Gap, on Knoxville, in order to occupy the railroad at that point, and thus enable the loyal citizens of eastern Tennessee to rise, while you at the same time cut off the railway communication between eastern Virginia and the Mississippi. It will be prudent to fortify the pass before leaving it in your rear. Brigadier General D.C. Buell End of Part 1, Chapter 12